one get faith? Where does faith come from? What is faith? Scripture tells us that faith itself is a gift of God. If salvation is about us, it is not a gift. It is a result of work. If God's sovereign and sovereignly called me, then He has sealed me. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. All right, so for three weeks, I have been teasing these three questions that I want us to get to the answers to, and I am happy to say uh, we will absolutely do that today. We will conclude the great tangent. So today's message comes from Ephesians 3, verses 12 and 13, and it's the fifth part of the great tangent, but I broke the fifth message into two messages. Last week was part one of part five. Today is part two of part five. So, uh, very confusing title. I probably should have just named them um, Infinity War and Endgame, and everybody would have known exactly what I was talking about. Okay, so here's the three questions that I've been teasing for three straight weeks. How does this apply to me? What is my responsibility in all this? And is this even possible? And what we're talking about is specifically the idea that Paul is strongly commanding the church in Ephesus to dissolve the issues between Jewish and Gentile believers because the coming together of those two parties for centuries sworn enemies would send a shockwave not just through the human realm, but through the spiritual realm as well to tell them, listen, if people see that the gospel has the ability to heal issues between race groups, religions, creeds, and backgrounds, Imagine the glory that Christ would receive. It is an incredibly appropriate and poignant message for us here today, dealing with all of the race issues that we see in our country right now. Two weeks ago, I made a thesis that said, I firmly believe that the gospel is the only legitimate resolution to issues of race disparity. In fact, Human solutions to that problem often do nothing but drive a deeper wedge between those people groups. And I'm going to continue to press that truth in on you using the scriptures. So to review from last week, last week in part one of this final series, we looked at two Greek words that Paul illustrates to us. So if you have your Bibles, let's read verses 12 and 13, and then we will dive in. Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So the first word that we looked at was this word boldness. Parisia is the Greek word. And what we concluded after studying that word is this. Because of Christ, we do not need to mince words with God. We can just shoot straight from the heart without any need for pomp or formality. The second word that we looked at last week was the English word access. And we've looked at this word before earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, prosegogi. 
And prosegogi means that Christ serves as our introducer in the court to God. He is the one that says to the Almighty Father, this one's with me and is requesting an audience with you. And because of God's love for the Son, he then has love for us and we have an audience. And here's our conclusion. Christ has already served our introduction to God, despite the fact that judgment is yet to come. We, as a people, are already known to God, and Christ has granted us an intimate audience with him, which is an incredible advantage in terms of our ability to commune with God. So what I want to do is look at one more Greek word before we draw these things to an answer, and it is this word that we see in verse 13, Confidence. So if you look at 12 and 13, I'm sorry, it's at the end of verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith. So the Greek word here for confidence is pepo, pepo I can never say this right, pepoithesis. Say that three times fast. The definition is trust, confidence, and reliance, but it can be used in different ways depending on how it appears in context. So let me give you a couple examples. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.15, and in this confidence, popoithesis, I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit. Paul then later writes the exact same word in 2 Corinthians 3.4, and most English translators translate it not as confidence, but as trust. And such trust we have through Christ to Godward. Okay, so my conclusion, what I want to teach you about this word, because it can, it can vacillate between confidence and trust, it is better to understand this word not just as confidence, but rather confidence through faith, and the Greek word for faith is pistis. So if you look at how it's phrased here in our passage, again, it says, with confidence through faith. So it's not a self-confidence. It's not, I'm confident in my own ability. It's that I'm confident because of my belief. That is what gives me such confidence. Meaning, the confidence is not our own, but a confidence born of greater belief that Jesus actually accomplished these things that Paul is saying that he did on our behalf. So let me, let me boil that down so it makes more sense. There is an aspect to which when we understand our salvation, that we are saved, many of the benefits are granted to us immediately. It was kind of like the silly example that I gave last week about, let's say you, and you apply to Harvard, you get accepted, and on the first day that you show up at Harvard, you are handed a diploma. And they're saying, no, no, you still have to do the four years, you still have to do the work, but you're as good as graduated. Many of the benefits of being a believer don't wait until we actually die and leave this world. And chief among them is the fact that God now hears us, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. There is a huge difference between the believer and the non-believer in terms of how they interpret the scripture based on these two things. Point number one, if I'm saved, I have the regenerate mind of the Holy Spirit and I can see things in scripture that I simply do not have the ability to see before I'm saved. And then those things drive me to prayer to a God who knows me, acknowledges me, and listens to me because of what Christ did 2,000 years ago. So a huge, huge um, bathing of blessing comes from all of this. Now to me, and pastorally, this is where it leads me. It leads me to a reality check for our faith. 
What type of faith do we actually have? I'm going to ask these questions. I would just ask that you answer them silently because we could have a variety of answers here. So this serves as a litmus test. If you look at what Paul writes in verse 12, it is fair to then say and ask of yourself, do you have faith? And I'm going to assume that the vast majority of us who are confessing Christ as our Savior would say, yes, we do have faith. Okay. If you have faith, the next question becomes, do you approach the throne of God with confidence? And if you're anything like me, your answer is probably, I think so. I think I approach the throne of God with confidence. If you are being honest and you conclude, I don't think I necessarily always approach the throne of God with confidence, and maybe I'm meeker or I'm more timid, let me ask you a question, and I do want a response on this. What makes you approach the throne of God without confidence? Even though you know you're saved, what are the things that would make you approach the throne of God not as confident as you should be? Who said that? Rick? Yeah. Uh, Rick, here we ask people to put their hands up before they say things. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Rick is absolutely right. Yeah, your sin. Do you come to God the same way when you're on fire for Christ as when you're right when you're in the middle of a season of backsliding? No. No. Now, should you? Should you approach the throne of God with the same amount of confidence? He asks with a big grin on his face when you're in the midst of sin. Katie, Jared, you guys are nodding your heads. Yes. Why? Because your sin has already been bought. Boom. It's done. It's done. It doesn't mean that we should not feel shame or regret or let the Holy Spirit do its work to draw us to repentance. But to disqualify our confidence on the basis of the fact that we have sin, let's just be honest for a moment here, do we ever approach God without sin? No. A lot of times we approach God with sin that we're not aware of, or maybe we're not in the midst of a lifestyle of sin, but we always approach the throne with sin. And how much sin does it take to be found guilty before God? Any. Any amount. From 6 billion to 0.000001 is good enough. Right? So our confidence in coming to Christ, or coming to God through Christ, should not be affected by what's going on in our life. That's one of the messages that's definitely in this text. So Paul tells us, well, if you have faith, you absolutely should have confidence, and I just told you why. The reason you should have confidence is because Christ, by what he has already done for you, this is not work left to be done, it is accomplished. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, we tend to think he's saying, finally, it's over. I can turn my spirit over uh, this, this horrible physical and spiritual ordeal of being destroyed is over. Well, there's a problem with that line of logic to think that Christ is talking about his work because we know that he then spent three days in separation from the Father. So when he says it is finished, oh, no, no, no. His agony is just beginning. What he is saying when he's saying on the cross, it is finished, is it is done. This work of eradicating sin is 
over. It's a done deal. This is why when Satan comes to you and reminds you of all of your failures of the past, and if Satan's being particularly clever and reminds you, hey, if you're being realistic, you're going to sin again and again and again and again and again, your answer to him is that that issue is dead before God. It is done. It was nailed to the cross. You cannot hold me to my sin, Satan. I am God's child because that issue has been forever settled. So with that in mind, we have two things that Paul has told us. We have boldness, the ability to speak to God without having to mince words or be super formal. So in that regard, you can... um, Pray to God wherever you are, in whatever state you are in, however you find yourself, you can pray to God. And then secondly, the access, the fact that you are guaranteed through Christ, the audience will receive your message. So the point is approach God with the confidence of having both boldness and access. We get the confidence because of the boldness and access that we are told told to pursue. Jamie is not here today, but I have dwelled on the words that she said last week, all week while I was preparing this sermon. All week I kept allowing these words to, to just echo through my head because they were so perfectly poignant. And I'm going to paraphrase what Jamie said. I think I got it for the most part. She's talking about her relationship with her now deceased father, Jim. And Jamie said, yeah, when I was growing up, he was the authority figure and he was given due respect, but I never felt like I couldn't go to him because he was my father. So his standing as my father superseded everything else. Remember what we talked about last week? God looks at us through a lens that says they are my children before they are my subjects. Yes, they are my subjects. But before they are my subjects, I love them. They're my children. That's an awesomely, awesomely, awesomely powerful thing to try to digest. So that brings us to the conclusion of the matter as we see in verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, because of these things. And in a way, he's not using this tone, but Paul is saying, you are without excuse. You have been given access. You have been given boldness. You have been given confidence through faith. Therefore, here's my request. I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. What in the world is he talking about here? It seems like he has shifted radically, and now he's talking about himself. Now he's talking about directly the church at Ephesus. Let me ask you guys a question. This phrase that I have in the New King James that I'm reading, it is translated that you do not lose heart. And there are about three major schools of translations for that phrase. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart. How many of you have that you do not lose heart? Do any of you have that you not faint? Does anybody have that one? Anyone? No one? Okay. Does anyone have, um, there's one other rendering of it here, that you not be discouraged? Okay, okay. Paul is saying, listen, I know that you're worried about me. I know that you've heard about my trials, my beatings, my imprisonment, being constantly pursued and threatened by both Rome and my own people, the Jews. 
But, but because we have such amazing access to God and access where God sees us as children before he sees us as subjects and access where we can speak plainly to the creator of the universe and access that is born from our faith that Jesus Christ has granted us and become a sacrifice for the debt that we could never pay on our own. Because of all of this, my request is that you do not lose heart because my tribulations are all a part of his plan. And here's the crazy thing. My tribulations exist for your glory. Your glory. He doesn't say Christ's glory. He doesn't say God's glory. He says, my tribulations exist for your glory. Okay, so let's break this down. This phrase, that you not lose heart, King James, American Standard, Young's Literal, they translate it as that ye not faint. He's literally saying that you not faint or pass out at the thought of what I'm going through. New King James, Nasby, and New Literal translate it that you not lose heart. The NIV, that you not be discouraged. This is one of those areas where I take some linguistic tension with the NIV. The NIV's is really way too light of a translation. The NIV paints it as, oh man, we miss Paul. I hope he's not going to prison. Okay, and you compare that with the King James, just like that you not pass out. Those are two very different things. Would you agree with me? And the, King, the new King James, the Nasby, and the new literal, they kind, of, they kind of put it somewhere in the middle. Okay, So you have extreme on the top and bottom and somewhere in the middle. What Paul is emphasizing here, and I would say they're all legitimate renderings. They really are all legitimate renderings of the original Greek. But Paul is telling them, don't lose heart when you think of me. Not, he's not saying, pray that my tribulations end. He's saying the tribulations have purpose, and their purpose is your glory, your, the church at Ephesus, or to expand it to the audience today, us, the church, the saints, the believers in God, my question becomes, how in the world does Paul's tribulations, how does that become the glory of the church? Ron? Because they, they go forth in spite of all of this good, good. Yeah, we persevere. We go, we go forth despite of the things happening. What else? Rick? Good job. It was a very good job of raising your hand. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth of the gospel. You know, Paul's end all be all is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so whatever it takes, yep. hardship, you know, shipwrecks, whatever, yeah. it's so that those who hear him Gain the glory of Christ. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. It's huge. Paul, does anybody else have any thoughts there? Jared? I say carries on that message of confidence. Like I can confidently approach God. Yeah. So why can't? Why would I not confidently be able to withstand? Yeah, yeah. My, Jared, you, you answered my next question before I asked it. My next question is: Okay, why does Paul choose to say this here? What's the therefore? Therefore. How does he connect these concepts, boldness, access, confidence, to therefore, because of your ability to talk to God and know that he's hearing you, don't lose heart at what I'm going through? Is he not in a subtle but effective way saying, do not place your faith on me? 
Do not make me the champion martyr of the church. I have a role to play, but so do you. Instead, as I lay dying in a prison cell, as I write this book, my encouragement is for you to draw closer to God. And here's how. Boldness, access, confidence. So when you think of my suffering, let that draw you closer to God. Do not weep for me. Praise Jesus. It's an unbelievably selfless thing that Paul is saying. And the result of that is that the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of the Son, now becomes glorified because they're willing to endure, because they see these hardships as another thing that we have to face. This is one of those pinnacle reasons that I fear for the American church, because we have had it so good for so long, largely being in the majority, that as the winds are shifting socially, and as we're seeing America follow a path much like Europe, where church and God gets marginalized and minimized, I've shared this statistic with you before, but 4% of Europe attends church on Sunday morning, 4%, okay? And that is the trajectory of where we are headed in about three generations. And I'm gonna say something quite shocking. I don't know that that's all bad, I don't. Not that I want us to become a godless country, but I think the more difficult it becomes to be a Christian, the more the wheat is separated, is separated from the chaff. And the more the legitimate Christians endure and the cultural playing Jesus illegitimate Christians find something else to believe in because what we believe in is too hard to actually live out. Now, that being said, Rob and I were having a conversation this week. We were basically, I'll cut to the chase. The, the, the conclusion of our conversation was, thank God we're not teenagers today because we had so many struggles growing up in the 80s and 90s, and the things that our kids have to deal with, oof. So selfishly, I say, thank God I'm not there, but then I look at my children, I look at all the kids in our church, and I say, we have such a challenging task to educate them. And I'll give you two quick examples. Challenging young women to understand that before they are anything, they're daughters, of the king, to have a level of self-worth and self-respect that doesn't allow anyone, including themselves, to think of themselves as anything less than royalty. Secondly, for men to understand that they've been put in a position, young men, that women are going to trust them and desire them, therefore their conduct needs to be, as Hebrews would say, without even the appearance of evil. Men need to be men, and women need to understand their value. And that's where we have to start with this unbelievable challenge that's before us with, this, with everything that we have going on in society. So all of these are legitimate renderings, and Paul is saying, look to Christ, because through him you have access to the Father. Do not dwell on me. Let me give you one last brilliant quote. This is from Jonathan Edwards, and then we'll answer our three questions and wrap this all up. So Jonathan Edwards, looking at the same passage we've been looking at for the past three weeks, comes to a very similar place of conclusion. He says, by or through whom, referring to Christ, 
So through Christ, we have liberty to open our minds freely to God as to a father and a well-grounded persuasion of audience and of acceptance with him. And this by means of the faith we have in him as our great mediator and advocate. That's a very 1680s way of saying the same thing that we've been saying. The brilliance of this passage is that it teaches us the access that we have to the creator of the universe who sees us as his sons and daughters. With, or we may become, I love this phrase, we may then come with humble boldness to hear from God, knowing that the terror of the curse is done away. And we may expect to hear from him good words and comfortable. We may have access with confidence to speak to God, knowing that we have such a mediator between God and us and such an advocate with the Father. This last sentence here from Edwards paints this picture for me, and I want to share it with you. When we think of our sinless self and we think of the holiness of God, do you agree with me that these are the two most opposite forces in the universe, right? The holiness and perfection of God, the fallenness of man. Have you ever considered this? We always use the bridge illustration. It is, it is Jesus who stands in the gap and acts as the bridge between these two chasms, right? Or these two cliff edges over this chasm, right? That's fair. But have you ever thought about this? Not necessarily how big the cross is, but how strong the cross is to connect these two things. They're opposite forces moving in opposite ways. God is moving unto holiness. We are moving fully and further unto destruction. And Christ gets a hold of us and gets a hold of his father and brings those two groups together. Have you ever thought of the strength of the cross to endure such oppositional forces? And it would be one thing if as soon as Christ gets a hold of us, bam, sanctification takes place and we no longer sin. But we know that's not what happens. Sanctification is a process, and we still boneheadedly and moronically sin over and over and over again, even though we're saved. And yet the cross is holding to us. We are not clinging to the cross. The cross clings to us to unite us to God's ultimate destiny for us. It's an awesome picture. I'm trying to think of some like amazing Kevlar space age polymer that could do that. There's nothing on earth that could combine and unite those two forces. Okay, so with all of that having been said, I would like to return to our three questions as we close out this arc that we have been in, in the immediate sense for three weeks, but for much longer than that. So the first question, how does this apply to me? Now here's the bad news, you're gonna answer that for me because I've been drilling it into you for three weeks. So there are a variety of ways to answer this and I will give you my answer, but I wanna hear from you guys first. How, does these, how, does, how do these truths apply to me? Mark. The first thing that came to my mind when reading this and especially on our prayer list where we're praying for the church and state in California is this is so topical today. Mm. We are, um, like you said, we are about, and our kids and our grandkids, and especially that applies right now to us, our grandkids are about to go through a huge challenge. And they have to know that despite any suffering they might endure, God is there for them. Mm. Boy, that's huge. That's that's Because we're not going to be. We're going to die. Like, we're going to die out. We are not going to be there forever for our kids. We have to train them while we can. But yes, God absolutely always will be. That's huge, Mark. Dan? You know, 
Ephesians 4 there, 12 and 13, he talks about trials, because mm -hmm. of my trials. Uh, and I read a book that's not a Christian book, but he said that, uh, oh no, he goes, it's not knowledge or education that changes us. Uh, because you've got obese doctors, you've got divorced uh, counselors, and you go through that list of, of, of people. And so he says, so when I look at Paul, he says his trials, and then I go back to 1 Corinthians 4, and he says, we're wearily with our, we work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. And he goes on here and says, uh, we bless those who curse us, we're patient with those who abuse us, we appeal for gently when evil things are said about us, yet we are treated like the world's garbage, mm. like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my beloved children. And so I think the confidence he has in what it is, it isn't so much, although it's vital to teach the word so that we know the word, but what's more vital is that they see why I'm willing to go through all of that and be treated like garbage in a world that says you are garbage because you don't think like us. And that demonstrates not called knowledge, but his relationship with Christ Jesus and how deeply in love he is with the Lord. And that's the deep love that the kids will see. And they will understand because they see it in front of them rather than words that they're hearing. Mm. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, this idea, to use Dan's phrase, the world will see us as garbage because we don't think like them. Right? So they, they will be dismissive of us. It's cancel culture. They will absolutely eradicate us. Okay? And we need to be able to say, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I still love you. I'm still going to pray for you. I'm still going to engage with you. I'm not going to treat you how you treat me. I won't. Because my God is greater than all of these things. And if I'm being honest with myself, I was once in your camp, hating the people that I'm now a part of. You feel that in Paul's language? I mean, every word that Paul writes is with the understanding that he was once persecuting this very church that he is now dying for. It's a huge thing that we can't forget. How does this apply to me? Mary. These were my rambling thoughts this morning, so bear with me. I was reading an article in Reader's Digest about the Oklahoma City bomb, mm -hmm. and the thought occurred to me, if I was in the same room as the man with that bomb, what would I say? What would I do? And there were many choice words that came through my head, but then it was that confidence of, he'll get what he deserves, it's fine. But then this other voice on the other side said, would you be okay if he was in heaven with you? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? My God is big. Yeah. My God can save that person yeah. too. And I'm okay on the other side. Yeah. So it's that confidence in knowing that God is justice, but God is forgiveness, and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. That's really, really well said. Anyone else want to chime in on this? How does this apply to us, Kevin?
come out of church to have to have any things. And that's part of the glory. Yeah. Your glory. And if you go back to look at Job twenty eight, twenty-eight, and it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Mm. And to depart from evil is understanding. And of that that the picture I think that you painted of the strength of the cross. Mm. Those two ideas, yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Anyone else? How does this apply to me? Jody? I mean, I think that what Paul said about um, bringing peace between two different disparate groups still stands today. I think that Paul would probably encourage the church to lead in that rather than allowing politics to lead. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. Um, here's the issue in which I think the church needs to be apolitical. It's not because of separation of church and state. It's because neither the elephants nor the donkeys have the solutions. They don't. We do. We do. Regardless of political affiliation, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not social reform. It is not programming. It is not tax levels. It is not human solutions. They will not work. And again, I said this two weeks ago, but if you want me to prove it, I can do that very simply. Look at human history. No society through governance has ever achieved what the gospel achieved in an instant, both in your heart and on the cross. Let me give you my answer. How does this apply to me? If you are a believer, this is a reminder that whatever is going on out there, pandemic, political unrest, race tension, I am right here. And you have access to me. The one greater than all of these things, come to me. Come to me. Paul was writing to a group of people who were not stupid. They were watching someone that was a champion of the church be persecuted for being a champion of Christ. And they're thinking to themselves, well, if we follow in Paul's footsteps, what are we going to lose? Are we going to get imprisoned? Are we going to be beaten? Are we going to be executed? And Paul says, maybe, maybe. For the course of your glory, I persevere on. Second question, a little bit more of a direct question. What is my responsibility then in all of this? Before I give my answer, does anybody want to chime in here? What is my responsibility in all this? Jody alluded to it a little bit with her previous answer. Yeah, the church needs to take the lead, right? Anybody else want to say anything differently or more specific? Jodes? Well, I think that then it's personal responsibility. Yeah. So in this particular topic, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is my personal responsibility and what do how do I look at beliefs that maybe I have held in, and mm. and it's been a painful process that I've gone through it, but I think it's something that's worthwhile doing and I certainly think that the gospel demands that of us. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Really well said. Anything else? Anyone else? Rhonda? The Lord calls us to be a peculiar people and <laughs> you know us living for him and in spite of all the things that the world tries to demand of us, you know, there's going to be people that are going to say, well, 
that person has something different. Yeah. yeah. How can I get that? If Rhonda's correct, then we're called to be a peculiar people, at least in part, I want to encourage you. You're all very peculiar. <laughs> what is my responsibility in all of this? Here's my answer. The only thing with the power to bring peace to the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, put that first in your mind, first in your speech, and first in your solution when discussing these or any tribulations. My agnostic, very liberal best friend in Columbus hates that I keep bringing the gospel up. He hates it. Dan knows who I'm talking about. Uh, hates it because he's like, you can't spiritualize this. And I said, you can't solve it if you don't spiritualize it. It has to do with what you believe. And I, don't ask me to separate what I believe about the country or social things from what I believe about God. They cannot be separated. So there we go. The last one I'm going to answer myself. Is this even possible? Can this be done? Let me encourage you. Pandemic, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the election, these things do not keep our God up at night. They don't. They don't. He's got this. So, is it possible? The question is, what is not possible through Christ? That and the way that you answer that question is in and of itself a huge litmus test for where your faith is actually at, where your boldness is actually at, where your confidence is actually at. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbc-ashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. If you found this message helpful, please share it with a friend or loved one. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again right here next week.